welcome to the Outward OPC podcast. Outward OPC is a work of the Committee on Home Missions, and its goal is to encourage zeal for reaching the lost and to be a tool for the OPC and other Reformed churches to be more effective at reaching people outside the church. You can check out the website at outwardopc.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Brad Herzog here for Outward OPC. Today I have John Shaw with me. As many of you know, John Shaw is the General Secretary on the Committee on Home Missions and Church Extension. So I'll shift gears a little bit on you again. What do you think has changed? You were a church planter. Uh, now you're overseeing and helping and encouraging and directing church planting. What's different about church planting today than five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, what do you see as you look at the landscape that that we all need to be aware of and that we all need to be thinking about, praying about as we continue to move forward? So first of all, I mean, there's a significant cultural shift in the last 15 years. I mean, I know it's always a temptation to think there's been more changes in my lifetime than there was, you know, in someone else's previous lifetime. But in some ways, that's true. Just on, if you think about social moral issues, and, and I think it's fair to say, in some ways, the marginalization of a Christian ethic. So, and, and I'm not saying this is a political statement, but simply as an illustration. President Obama was elected on a platform that supported the idea that gay marriage should not be legal in the United States. By his second inaugural address, it was one of the primary themes of his inaugural address is that gay marriage should be legalized. That's a four-year shift. And by, by halfway through his second term, it was legalized. Uh, I mean, that alone, that shift in how people think and what is normalized changes evangelism, outreach. How do we speak the truth of the gospel? What are the truths that we can assume as we speak? And what are the truths that we cannot assume? That's changed dramatically in 10 or 15 years. And, and we'd be silly to think that it hasn't impacted the church. It hasn't impacted our children, who no matter how much we try to protect them from uh, what the world is speaking, you simply can't. It'd be naive to think that our children aren't hearing this message that if you uh, oppose gay marriage, you're a bigot. And I say all that not to make a political statement, but to say that has to change how we communicate the gospel. I think another huge shift that was beginning, you know, I was called as a church planner in 2006, and I remember thinking very clearly that the 20-year-olds that were in our church plant viewed the church very differently than people in their 30s and older. Every single one of the 20-year-olds, I think this is true, I don't think there was an exception, every single 20-year-old in our church was asking questions about the church. Do I really need to be a member of the church? Is it possible for a Christian to be faithful and not be part of a church? They were really wrestling with that. Well, now those 20-year-olds are 30-something. And now everybody under 40 is asking that question. And most, many of them, including Christians, have concluded that the church is tangential to the Christian life. That's a real issue for us to wrestle with because we believe strongly that the church is, is not incidental or tangential but that it's essential to living the Christian life. That's a big issue for us to grapple with as a church. I think those two changes alone, just in how the culture views social and moral issues and the place of the church in the life of the culture and in the life of the believer, 
we're swimming upstream on those issues. Now, it doesn't mean that we conform. And I actually think in some ways there's an opportunity for us because many evangelical churches are conforming to that and embracing some of those things. We're not going to conform, but we have to think more intentionally about how do we communicate those things. And that, that changes church planting because we're not planting preaching stations. We're planting churches. And so we have to be really clear about what we believe about the church and its role, what we believe about preaching and corporate worship, and to be able to both not just tell people this is essential, but why is it essential? Why does the Lord call us to be in churches? It's for our good. I was spoke to a group of high school seniors just yesterday, and I was seeking to encourage them in just a couple minutes about the central role of the church in their life. These are kids from a Christian school, and I told them, when you go to college and when you go somewhere, please find a church. And it's really for two reasons. Both they need the church, but also the church needs them. I think that's a big change. I also think in how we communicate the gospel from the pulpit has to change. Not the truth that we teach, but how we teach the truth. There are a lot of words that we assume that everybody knows what we're saying, and there are a lot of people in the room, even people who grew up in the church, who have no idea what we're talking about. We have to define our terms. We have to, to use the language that they use to explain something. This isn't new, by the way. This is what John Calvin did. If you read about his preaching, they, they talk about the fact that here's this academic who's brilliant, who preaches in the language of the people. And I think sometimes we forget that. We have to preach sermons that people can comprehend. The same deep truth, but in, in language that they can understand with illustrations that help them understand. So you anticipated one of my questions when you just said there about preaching with illustrations that people understand. Uh, I wanted to ask you about engaging the culture of the outsiders and unbelievers who are coming into our church. I'll just say it my way, as I've had the opportunity to visit a lot of conscientiously reformed churches and many OPC churches, I often find that sermons, as I would say it, they don't leave the room. The illustrations and everything are happening inside church life, and the members understand them, maybe from church history or general revelation or things like that. But what about the people coming in who, who know none of that and are, are Netflix and chill type people and are uh, sports fans and watching TV? How do you think about that, or how would you encourage church planters and members to think about that? And I'll throw one topic out there. You and I are both fans of the show, This Is Us, because let me make it clear. I'm not, I'm not interested in asking, should we be watching Game of Thrones and this and that and all this other stuff, but a, a show like This Is Us, is that relevant in engaging church? And maybe you can use that to sort of broaden what your thoughts are on, yeah. on that. So I'll answer that in, in two parts. On the one hand, I don't think to be an effective preacher, you don't have to watch, you know, like This Is Us or whatever the show is that everybody's watching. But I do think that you have to know people. How, how are people thinking? And I think as we preach, we have to approach uh, the text from different angles. If we're only speaking to people who are already convinced of the Reformed faith, then it's no wonder that our people are not inviting their friends unless they're already Reformed. And so I think we have to use language and illustrations that speak to life. Uh, I think Jesus does this. 
I think it actually fits our theology. The gospel's not divorced from the world. Actually, the answer to every problem that we see in the world is found in the gospel. And so we need to be able to speak into people's circumstances. What are the, the kinds of issues that many people who are sitting in the pews understand because they've experienced it? So it might be illustrations from cultural things that are in the world that they've seen. It might be the common experiences that many of us have related to. Sometimes it's a list. If we're talking about a broken world and the kinds of things that we all know about a broken world, maybe it's a list of the kinds of things that cause pain in different people's lives. Because if you give a list of eight of them, probably everybody in the room has an experience with one of those eight things. And it it begins to show them how the gospel isn't divorced from the world, but actually the gospel and Jesus Christ explains everything. We do have to get better at that. I have to grapple with it regularly as I'm preaching, teaching, as I'm speaking to, uh, to friends and neighbors. What are the kinds of things that everybody wrestles with and how do we get at them? And sometimes that's what a good piece of art does. A book, a television show, a movie. Uh, the kinds of things that we make the, the closest connection to are the ones that, are, that speak most clearly of how people experience life in the world. So, John, another uh, obvious change that's taken place in our culture is the the social media YouTube culture that we live in. Uh, I've actually had a lot of interactions with uh, church planters as I've helped them with uh, creating an introductory church plant video and things like that. Wondered if you have just a couple thoughts about how technology now as a church or a church plant. I'm thinking in particular now website use of video, three, four-year venture now for home missions to to create these introductory uh, videos. How do you see that playing out? How important? And one of the great questions or statements that are made to me as I talk to guys is, I want to do that. We don't have any money in the budget Hmm. for this. Uh, I've, I've come across a few guys who have said, I've said, well, how much money do you have to get your first website up and running, and they said, well, really nothing, so maybe maybe $100. And I'm just wondering if you have thoughts on where we're headed in home missions with with these types of things as sessions and pastors think about it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm not sure how— there's a subset of people that are going to be hard to reach if you're not in these venues. And a website gets you to 30- and 40-year-olds. <laughs> videos and those kind of things get you to 20 year olds so I, I guess part of what i would say is if you want 20 30 and 40 year olds in your church you have to use these resources and you have to invest in them and do them well i, I try not to use my kids as illustrations too often but I'll, I'll give an illustration one of my sons 18 years old we have a lot of shared interests in, in sports and entertainment and humor and things and he regularly when he wants to share an experience with me, brings me his phone so that we can watch a video and we talk about it. This is the world in which my son lives. And and I, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, there are, I'm trying to train him how to, how to use social media well, and actually he, he uses it pretty well. But this is the place where we interact. This is where he gets information. He also, in the same venues, gets information on um, social science studies on questions of race, economics. He's doing all of this through his phone, and he is more engaged than I was as an 18-year-old. 
I've been surprised sometimes at how much information he's digested that he's wrestling with on issues before we ever have the conversation. But they're all happening through web, technology, social media, and almost all, not even through a computer, but through his phone, which is his computer. If we want to reach those people, now my son's in the church and he's reading those things, but if we want to reach people like him who aren't, don't already have a natural affinity for the OPC, this is the first place that you're going to meet those people. And so to me, it's not a question of should we spend money on these things, but how much do we need to spend to do it well? Now, they come with all the pitfalls, and we need to understand that. Social media is a, a dangerous beast in certain ways. You know, you can't have, in my opinion, substantial conversations on Twitter. You introduce things on Twitter, but the substantial conversations have happened somewhere else. So I get all the pitfalls of these things. And we have to be really careful how we use social media because it's not the same thing where if you post something, you erase it 12 hours later and it disappears. It doesn't. It's out there. And so we have to be careful, but we can't ignore them. They're tools that we need to use. And I say that as someone who barely functions on social media. So in some ways, maybe it's hypocritical for me to say this, but if I was pastoring a church right now, I'd have those things because this is the way you interact. To use my son again, because when, when I was first a pastor and, and 20 year olds would want to interact with me on texting, I would say, hey, I'm happy to have that conversation, but I can't have it by text. I was just in Columbia teaching when my son had a significant accomplishment that he was excited about. And from Columbia with him in Philadelphia, we spent an hour texting with each other. I went back and counted over 35 texts that he sent to me in an hour to celebrate a significant accomplishment that he was excited about, a goal that he'd set four years ago that he accomplished, that I was sharing that experience with him across countries and across a gulf. This is the world in which we live. And that was a significant moment for my son that I shared with him via text. So it's a great tool also, because I couldn't be there for him to accomplish that, but I could celebrate it with him. This, we have to think about these things and use them well as venues, new venues that have reach beyond what we can do face-to-face -face, with the goal eventually to be face-to-face, -face, but reach that we can't have in any other way. So we can't ignore it. We have to do it well. And I'd encourage us to use our young people to do it well. They can help us use these tools in an effective way. Yeah, that's good. I think on the, at the end there, you touched on what I was going to do as a follow-up. I was going to say, this is a whole topic in its own right, but what's one thing direct pastors and sessions to be thinking about? And maybe, maybe it's what you just said there. Yeah. Here, here's a way for your young people to teach you, to serve, um, to, to do these types of things. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about that just a little bit more. My, my oldest son, so not the one I've been talking about, but my oldest son, when I was a church planner, was he, he was eight years old when we moved there, and he was 15 years old when we left. And one of the ways that he served the church, he ran the sound system, he handled the uh, sermon audio stuff, and, and dealt with the technology. That was a great place for him to serve, and he had a more natural feel for it than most of the adults in our church, and he loved it because he wanted to serve in the church. And this was a unique way with skill set and interest that he had that he could serve. Well, if, if he was, if we had a church plant now, and now that he's 20 and he's a computer science major and a communications major, he wouldn't just be doing the sound system. He'd be helping us think about how do we use these technological tools to communicate with people. And we have, we have young people in our church that have these gifts. 
We want them to serve in the church, and that's part of the way that they're involved in the life of the church is they use their gifts to serve. This is a natural way for some of our kids who live in that world in a way that, you know, me now in my 40s, I don't live in that world, but they do. Why not use those things in a way to serve the church well, um, where they can invest their time and interests in gospel ministry? I mean, that that's something that we should be thinking about. Yeah, and one of the things that comes to mind for me when you say that is just, um, obviously, sessions need to think about the, the finances and things like that and who's going to do it. But if I could put a plug in for one of the things the committee is doing and overseeing is we're trying to model the use of this with Facebook and uh, recently Twitter. The, we, we put these things up for people to read, but we also put them up that maybe churches would not have to put time in cultivating and curating right. broader resources uh, videos and articles that might engage people, you know, in a way that's helpful, but they don't have to spend the time doing yeah. it. And I know a couple of our church plants are regularly sharing things from Twitter or Facebook that we've put up, and it allows them to fill that space to share good resources with their congregation. So people in their church that aren't reading outward or aren't looking at the home missions Twitter feed or, or Facebook feed, but they are looking at their churches. And so that's another tool that we're hope, hopefully providing to make that easy for churches to do that. So John, earlier in the discussion, we talked a lot about what we might call the more relational evangelism. We talked about Rosaria Butterfield's hospitality. And a question came to mind for me, it seems reading a lot of updates, talking to churches, churches are quick to go to maybe a street fair, maybe door hangers, things to let people know that you're in the community. All good things, all things that, that we can do, and particularly for awareness type of things. Is it fair to say that the resources that you've mentioned, the good examples we see both inside the OPC and from other areas of the church, is Rosaria's approach of a more patient, relational evangelism where we need to be thinking about heading and get really good at and really learn from others? Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about all the different tools we have, you know, we have a toolbox of ways to approach evangelism and outreach. I think this is a tool that we need to add, and I think some of our churches do it well. I think we all could do it better. I think we need to be helping our congregation think about relational opportunities to reach people and um, to add to those other things. So you don't have to stop doing door hangers. In fact, I'd tell you door hangers are great. Do door hangers, knock on doors, and talk to people. And we've had, you know, like Mark Sumter down in Texas, he knocks on doors. He gets lots of invitations and ongoing, like, repeat invitations where he's in people's homes four, five, six times. Talk to them about the gospel. So those are all good things, and we don't want to take that away. But something to think about. There are a lot of our people who, if you tell them what we're going to do is knock on a door and talk to people, they're not going to do it. It's, it's too intimidating. It's a difficult thing to do. But if we can create venues of fellowship and hospitality that involve building relationships in which we invest over periods of time, we can all do that. And I think that's, that's what we all should be doing together as a church, individually with our neighbors, but also together as a church having venues where we're building relationships. And it's completely worth it. There's something exciting about being with people for years and praying with them and praying for them and at some point seeing the Lord do something amazing in their life where they're brought to faith 
that experience is worth its weight in gold. So we had, in St. Paul, we had a, a lady, a Chinese lady that came to the U.S. with her family, hardcore committed atheist, that for five years we spent time with her. We prayed for her every week. Uh, we eventually had someone that she was willing to read the Bible with every week. And after five years of just getting to know her and loving her and her family, they were just they're a really sweet family with wonderful young children. And after five years, converted and baptized in the church. Now, if we were impatient, it would have been easy to say after six months or 12 months, it wasn't going anywhere because it kind of looked like that. It wasn't going anywhere. But five years of investment that we saw in this celebration, we had a fellowship meal the same day, a big old cake to rejoice with her. Her husband came, who's still not a believer, but rejoiced with us as his wife and daughters and daughter and son were baptized. What an experience to be able to do that. And I think those are the kinds of things that we should be doing alongside the other things that we normally do. And I think some of our churches have been doing that, but to see more and more of our churches investing in people's lives, that that's effective ministry. And I think Rosaria Butterfield provides a good example, illustration of it. I think it's biblical. So if you think about 1 Peter 3, you know, that classic verse, 1 Peter 3.15, where it says that essentially, if you paraphrase, it says that we're ready when people ask to give a reason for the hope that's within us. That doesn't happen the first time you meet someone. A person asks about the hope that you have in the midst and context of suffering, which is what that chapter and whole book is about. They've seen you suffer well over a period of time, and they know you well enough that they want to understand why you suffered in that way. That's an ongoing relationship in which you've invested time and life. That's a biblical model of evangelism that isn't the same thing as the door hangers, but a different thing. And I, I just think we need to grow in that. And it's, it's so useful, even if all that happens, and I, you know, if you could see me air quoting, all that happens is that we make a new friend. And as far as we know, they never come to faith. But I've been enriched by that person. And hopefully they've been enriched by their relationship with me. And we don't know what happens. Maybe, you know, we have this friendship for two years and then they move or I move and I don't ever see them again. But who knows if 10 years from now they're not converted and baptized and that that was a step in that process. That's also worth it. And we've all heard those stories of people that we invested in. 10 years later, you hear that that person's now in the church. I mean, this is how the Lord works, and what an exciting privilege to be part of that work. Well, this has been great, John. Thanks for taking the time, especially thanks for the stories and the particulars that people can get a more vivid picture of, of some of the things you get to see and Al gets to see as you, as you guys travel and see our churches. It's, it's exciting uh, to hear those stories and to be more engaged, and we look forward to, to doing it again down the road and hearing what's going on. Yeah, if I could just say as a follow-up to that, Al and I are so thankful for the the opportunity to serve the church in this way. I am regularly encouraged in my faith to see what the Lord does uh, with instruments that we all have our own weaknesses, but the Lord does amazing things. So we're really thankful to see that and to participate in it and to rejoice uh, as the Lord does some of that work. That's it for today's episode. You can go to the website at outwardopc.com to check out more resources. And you can sign up for our email list where you'll receive notifications when new things are available. Until then, we'll see you next episode.